Welcome to the Biocom Podcast. I'm Jack Omer-Jackerman, Biocom Senior Research Associate. Joining me today for discussion on Qatar is Barack Seaman. Barack is a Senior Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and the founder of Strategic Intelligentia and the Gulf Futures Forum. He also co-hosts the Geo Godfather Wars podcast. Previously, Barack was a Global Intelligence Manager at HSBC and the Middle East Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Barack, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, before we get to, to the Qatar and the post-October 7th period, in, in which it's played, it's been a key player, I want to set the scene by thinking about the status quo ante. The sense some have is that Qatar has indulged and has been indulged in, in rather having it both ways, in being on the one hand a major sponsor of extremism and on the other an important US ally a major non-NATO ally, in fact. Is that fair? And put another way, where does Qatar see itself positioned regionally and globally? I think that when you uh, discuss Qatar, it's very, very easy to um, sort of adopt a two-dimensional approach and um, demonize Qatar or justify Qatar. Um, and I think that it's important to appreciate um, the way states operate internationally. And um, from the Western perspective, while Western states uh, tend to adopt a coherent strategy to um, uphold the liberal international order. So we understand uh, there's, there's a rationality as to the alliance systems that Western states adopt and who it's not going to be allied there tends to be also within the West um, a degree of incoherence. So while we've been placing sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, we've at the same time been purchasing Russian energy um, and, in a sense, shoring up its economy. So that doesn't make much sense. And um, we see the same thing it becomes much more incoherent when you shift eastwards away from the um, liberal international order. So, for example, Turkey that is a NATO member. Um, it had a zero problems foreign policy where it expanded business and trade links with Arab states, as well as Iran. Um, and um, it fostered talks between Syria and Israel Fatah, Hamas, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it seemed to um, position itself in order to uh, be a neutral central node that would bind all these international actors together. Um, and the zero friend, the zero enemies, the zero problems actually uh, left them with zero friends. And you see the same thing with um, India's policy towards China. India is non-aligned. It's a non-aligned state. It seeks to um, increase its economic um, engagement, its trade with China, while at the same time, it wants to increase its military ties with the West in order to counter any potential Chinese threat posed to it. And um, we see the same with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. They are um, very much part of 
the US's security architecture in the region, benefiting enormously from CENTCOM, but at the same time, they are um, wanting to uh, gravitate towards China's sphere of influence and become part of the Shanghai Cooperation Council and are now being courted by the BRICS. So we see this kind of hedging that takes place by um, international actors. So um, Israel, by the way, has also had this type of ambiguity because um, on one hand, the US has had a Taylor Force Act to withhold funds from the Palestinian Authority for its pay-for-slay scheme, where the Palestinian Authority pays the families of uh, suicide bombers hailing their martyrdom. Um, at the same time, Israel is torn because it want, on one hand, it wants to um, adopt punitive measures towards the Palestinian Authority for these activities. But on the other hand, it doesn't want to see chaos um, ensue in the aftermath of a, a vacuum of governance if the Palestinian Authority in, implodes. So the so Israel will actively um, lobby against the Taylor Force Act um, on occasion if it thinks right we've given more than the more than a slap on the wrists to the Palestinian Authority we actually want to prop it up. So Israel hasn't got this completely coherent approach. Um, now I've. I remember many years ago reading Thomas Friedman's book from Beirut to Jerusalem, where he speaks about the um, the significance, the metaphorical significance of um, the Islamic logo, the in a sense the crescent, and um, he speaks about. Um, the Muslim world's ambiguity with truth. I don't remember the exact words that he uses, but that could be said about many more actors apart from Qatar within the international community. So um, Qatar, when, when we get to Qatar most specifically, um, we can see that its calculus is also driven by its geography. Um, it views its, you know, it has huge reserves of natural gas, and it's the third largest in the world after Russia and Iran. Um, however, it shares a field with Iran, so its massive offshore north field is contiguous with Iran's less developed south pass fields. So Qatar is forced, due to its geography, to align itself and not alien, certainly not alienate itself from, from Iran. Um, at the same time, Qatar has built the Aludeid air base in the late 90s, uh, which is a huge, huge facility, um, which the US Air Forces and allied contingents have used as their main Gulf base uh, to control all of US air activities uh, stretching from Iraq to Afghanistan. So on one hand, it wants to make nice with Iran. On the other hand, it needs to make nice to the United States. Um, 
we've, we see the same kind of ambiguity taking place that um, there are US diplomats uh, that are focused on Afghanistan operating out of the US embassy in Doha. And at the same time, Qatar has hosted an office of the Taliban since 2013. And it was vital for the evacuation of Afghans who worked for the US and coalition entities. Um, so it has this continual ambiguity playing out while it's hosting US uh, bases. It's also sponsoring Al Jazeera, which is very pro-Islamist, very anti-American, especially its Arabic channel. Um, it is sponsoring the Muslim Brotherhood while at the same time serving US strategic interests. So we see exactly the same thing in its relationship with Hamas. It has been sponsoring Hamas um, to a great degree at Israel's behest, because just like the Taylor Force Act vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian Authority, Israel thought that stability was equated with security, and it did not want a vacuum of governance in Gaza. So therefore, it behooved Israel's strategic calculus to allow Hamas to be funded by Qatar. Um, and there was no outcry by Israel of this for an extended period of time. So um, the West has been beneficiary of this because uh, the United States knew that Qatar maintained a diplomatic channel with Hamas, and it requested Qatar to open that channel with the group more than a decade ago. So this kind of neutral, ambiguous, playing all parties um, sets Qatar up as a form of a back channel or trap to diplomacy. Um, and... Even in terms of Iran, Qatar was instrumental in a prisoner exchange deal between the US and Iran, which led to the US unfreezing $6 billion of Iran's money. Um, and it's also facilitated talks between the Biden administration and Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro. Um, in which there would be an agreement that the Venezuelan president would hold free and fair elections and release political prisoners in return for U.S. sanctions relief. So there is this kind of, well, not kind of, continual ambiguity that states may play in order to, um, in a sense, survive in a really turbulent um, landscape, but also thrive. And I'm saying this with no value. It would be too easy for me to um, ascribe value to it, saying it's either prudent or it's um, duplicitous. But this is a strategic calculus that Qatar is playing. And I just find it really, really interesting that this ambiguity uh, was reflected on February the 24th in the Jerusalem Post. You had two articles published on the same day by the Jerusalem Post. One article was uh, entitled Qatar's Regime Under Fire for Training Hamas Terrorists. 
another article which was entitled Israel to send delegation to Qatar amid optimism about hostage deal. Do you not see the ambiguity taking place there? Even in terms of Israel's reaction to that strategic calculus right. that Qatar has adopted. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Barak. I, I think it's 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 a very sort of welcome salient reminder uh, that in assessing international affairs, uh, living with these contradictions and these and these ambiguities uh, is very important. I mean, you made By reference. The way, so I'd yeah, say that the, the difference between being a pundit and being a strategist is that a pundit seeks simplicity, and he just wants to basically stand on a soapbox and be vocal. Sure. Um, and when you're a strategist, you need to seek the complexity. And um, that's what I'm doing vis-a-vis Qatar. I see complexity across the international community. And I think Qatar embodies that. Absolutely. Um, you made reference to, to the Qatar Hamas uh, relationship. Let's just get into that a, li- a little deeper. How significant a backer of, of, of Hamas has have the Qataris been over the years? And 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 what are the dynamics of that relationship? Um, you know, is it is it is it a, a kind of question of, of, of a patron? Uh or or in other words, you know, how much influence have the Qataris had over Hamas? I think that um well, it's just facts that Qatar has poured hundreds of millions of dollars into aid into Gaza. Um, it's um, hosted Hamas's political office since 2012. And um, at the same time, maintains good relations with the US and Iran. So I think based on their geography, um, and based on their very small demographic and a huge um, gas producer, um, Qatar is playing a very, very smart strategy of surviving and thriving in the region. Um, you know, if one wants to then say, is it moral or is it not moral? That's a separate question. But in terms of uh, the strategy that it's playing, that many other states are also playing, that is, um, it, it, it. you can see that Doha um, is not drowning in this region. Thank you. And, 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 and sort of, you know, consequentially, what what about Qatari-Israeli relations? What, what has been their history and how has that developed? So um, in 1996, Shimon Peres visited Doha and an Israeli trade office, uh, which was a de facto embassy, was set up there soon after. Um, do you also see the ambiguity of that? They're not recognizing Israel. And there's a trade office, there's yeah. a de facto embassy. And this remained open until 2008, uh, when Israel carried out Operation Cast Lead. Now, there was never a reciprocal office um, that, uh, by the Qataris that was created in Tel Aviv. Um, and today, despite not recognizing Israel, Israelis are still able to visit Qatar using Israeli passports 
and Israel's foreign minister has a Qatar desk office. So um, the only way that Qatar would be able to be f- to formalize its relations with Israel is if it didn't have to worry about an alienated um, Iran on its doorstep. Um, so therefore, if, for example, there were measures to, um, how should I say, neutralize Iran from advancing its nuclear um, ambitions, or there was regime change in Iran, um, then perhaps Qatar would feel more comfortable at formalizing relations with Israel. But at the moment now, it has nothing to gain and everything to lose by doing so. Thank you, Barack. Let's now, let's get into some some kind of post-October 7th specific detail. Um, Qatar has been much involved uh, in that period. Um, before we get into that, the hows and whys, let's look at some of the, the what. Can you, can you give our listeners a summary of Qatar's engagement in terms of the hostages and of the war in Gaza? Qatar has been used as a back channel by the US and by Israel um, to um, serve as interlocutors with Hamas and um, attempt to um, secure the release of hostages. The question is, how does Hamas do it? And I think no one on the outside knows it. I don't think even Israel or America knows it. I think that um, Qatar's biggest strength, you know, I remember many years ago, President Obama's, um, his charisma was uh, described as he would stand in a room, echo everybody convincingly in the room, everybody with their very diverging um opinions and policy agendas felt that they, their positions had been represented and adopted by President Obama. And he had this very collegiate um, manner of diplomacy. Um, and I think that's the style that Qatar is adopting, reflecting back to Israel and, and the US, their security concerns, their aspirations vis-a-vis the hostages, and as well reflecting back to Hamas, their interests as well. Um, And by doing so, it's a kind of diplomatic strategy. Um, You know, it's sort of diplomacy 101, where you attempt to to feel, you make each side feel that their positions are equally represented in order to achieve great the greatest amount of concessions from them. Thank you, and, and I mean a follow up, which which I think your your previous sort of distinction between strategists and, and, and pundits will, will come in useful because we hear a great deal from from pundits in this regard. So, a kind of straightforward question: is, is Qatar to be considered an honest an honest broker here, especially with so, regard to the, to the hostages? So again, Qatar has no interest in preventing the release of the hostages it wants to it wants to secure a positive outcome from a status quo i.e it's going to reflect back to each party their interests um 
and really hope for the best conditions to emerge from it. Um, and that's basically it. There's, you know, it's again, one could call it duplicitous, but this is Diplomacy 101 that uh, Qatar is playing in that ambiguous region. And that's why there is this cliche of shifting sands. One always refers to the Middle East as shifting sands. And Qatar has remained afloat despite the shifting sand. And it, you know, if there was a broker like the US that would be very, very adamant and decisive towards Hamas, well, Hamas is a sub-state actor sponsored by Iran, and um, they would, the US would have no sway. So when you're dealing with a terrorist organization with, a link, with links to a rogue regime, the best you're going to come up with is an Islamist sympathizer that has a pro-Western orientation at the same time, and that is embodied by Qatar. Thank you. Uh, let's shift, shift focus ever so slightly. Many of the reports on on the kind of thinking around the reconstruction of Gaza uh, imply some some fairly heavy lifting from from Qatar. Is that your understanding of, of Washington and indeed Jerusalem's expectations? And and how big an appetite is there in Doha for that for that kind of uh, investment? I'll start with the latter question first. I think that the appetite would only exist if they're able to project to their population as well as fellow GCC populations, i.e. the Arab street, that um, they are maintaining the symbol of the Palestinian cause. So if there is going to be any infrastructure development um, by that is led by a local Palestinian stakeholder that has the buy-in of the Palestinian population, then they would, I, I'm sure Qatar would be involved in that. And um, it also hinges upon who Israel manages to secure as the main stakeholder that is responsible for this type of entity. Um, if it is a local entity with credibility that have no prior Islamist ties, like what Netanyahu touted the other, <coughs> sorry, touted the other day, then that could be quite an opportunity. Um, we haven't heard any alternatives emerging from Washington or Jerusalem as to credible. Uh, stakeholders representing the Palestinians. Thank you. Another another issue which has arisen in, in recent days is is a demand seemingly from from Prime Minister Netanyahu that some of the the um, more serious uh, Palestinian security uh, uh, prisoners that would be set to be released in in a in a, in, a, in a hostage deal. That he's demanding that they not return to the Palestinian territories, but instead be homed in in Qatar. Um, is that first of all? Is it, do you believe there's substance to those reports? And secondly, how is that received in in Qatar? Look, there would be uh, definitely 
and credibility for that because we saw that um, the release of Gilad Shalit uh, led to the massacre of October the 7th. Uh, Sinwar was released on for Gilad Shalit. Um, so Israel is very reluctant to um, have a replay of the massacre of October the 7th. And they would not want to have senior um, Hamas operatives be released back into Gaza to once again reconstitute themselves because everything that Israel is currently doing now is to dismantle Hamas's infrastructure. So releasing um, senior Hamas operatives back into Gaza would be absurd. Um, they, it, the question then becomes, if you release them to um, Qatar, can they contribute to their political office and can they constitute some kind of command and control with links back into Gaza to once again foment terrorism? Um, that's a question that they need to consider. Um, but there is no doubt that Israel on no circumstances would want them to be present in Gaza. Thank you, Barack. Just a couple couple more questions. Do you think October 7th and its aftermath is, it, we might look back on, on this in, in decades' time as not only a hugely significant event for Israelis and Palestinians, but perhaps a, a fairly significant event, a significant event in Qatari terms too, uh, in its relationships with, with the major players and with the wider world? I think that currently it's reinforcing uh, Qatar's strategy of being this so-called neutral um, side that can serve as an interlocutor for everybody while maintaining its legitimacy for everybody. Um, and with the only thing that would prompt Qatar to reevaluate that calculus is if the Iranian threat is removed from the equation. If the Iranian threat remains a central part of that equation, with its proxies like Hamas, Hezbollah, Khatib, Hezbollah still involved, uh, still active, then it would want to, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood still active, it would still want to maintain its pro-Western orientation and um, at the same time seek to be a sponsor of Islamism throughout the region. Thank you. Um, you've recently authored, authored a new report uh, entitled Unfreezing the Abraham Accords. Um, but you give listeners uh, a summary of, of your findings. The whole purpose of the Abraham Accords was really that America could anchor its, um, its interests in the region while maintaining a light footprint and pivoting towards Asia. America looks at the Middle East and it sees that there's a threat of nuclear proliferation and terrorism. Um, but apart from that, as an energy producer, the interests of the Middle East um, is much lower on its agenda, and all it wants to do is to counter threats emanating from the region 
and focus, on, but instead focus on great power competition with China. And um, so what it did was the Abraham Accord served to anchor that by creating a new economic trade and security architecture in the region where Israel and GCC states would be able to assume that function for America, become more interconnected, and then um, kind of serve as that security anchor in the region. And um, Iran felt threatened by that because as um, GCC states and Israel become more interconnected, they feel more alienated in the region. It doesn't help them um, forming a Shia arc throughout the region. At the same time, China shares the same strategic um, interests as Iran because it would like to see America exit the region as it enhances its Belt Road initiative towards Arab states and bring Arab states, Gulf states rather, towards its sphere of influence. So it wants GCC states to shift eastwards away from the West. And uh, therefore, um, in order for the Abraham Accords to be sustainable and credible, it has to be deepened. And the only way to deepen it is by having other Western states like Britain uh, also join the Abraham Accords and use their economic trade and military interests to um, leverage their position in the region and foster greater interconnectivity between Abraham Accord signatories. Barack, thank you very much. Our listeners will have heard of, uh, will have heard about Qatari activity um, almost daily over the last the last three months, but generally through the the Israeli or the the Anglo American kind of prism. The the insights you've given us today into into their own thinking and their own strategies um, will have added hugely to, to to our listeners' understanding of that picture. It certainly has to mine. Raxina, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much. I appreciate that.